This story from Luke takes place around a meal. Not just any meal, but the most important one that Jesus and the disciples would ever have. Think about the times when you have gathered with family and friends for special meal times. Think about the sharing and the laughter and the conversation, the, the intimacy when we are all at the table, when we feast, not just on the food, but we're also nourished by the connections. But even before the meal begins, think about what it's like when everyone in your dinner party first approaches the table itself. Inevitably, the first thing everyone does is figures out where to sit, right? And there's always an internal discussion you're having in your mind. You think to yourself, I don't want to get stuck on that end of the table. That's, that's where the kids are sitting. And, and I don't want to spend the whole night coloring on the placemats with them and, and playing tic-tac-toe. Or, I hope I don't have to sit next to so-and-so, because they never say a word, and I'll just have to make small talk and basically carry the conversation the whole night. Where I want to be, you think to yourself, is where the action is. I want to sit next to the people who are the life of the party, where the laughter and sharing will be free and easy, where, where I can be myself and just belong. Put me next to those people. That's, that's where I want to be. You know, it's interesting that when Matthew and Mark describe this argument among the disciples about which one of them is the greatest, neither of them set it around a dinner table. They say the conversation takes place as they're walking along the road toward Jerusalem. But not here, not in Luke. Here, it is happening at a table. Because for Luke, it's basically an argument about where they get to sit. It's about the prestige and privilege they are hoping to receive next to Jesus. Now, I know we have all seen the classic portrayal of the Last Supper by Michelangelo. It depicts all 13 of them, Jesus and the 12 disciples, all sitting on one side of the long table. It's very unlikely that's how it happened. What is more likely is that they were sitting at a kind of table configuration more common in the Roman world. It's called a triclinium, or three couches, three recliners. Imagine, first of all, not one long table, but a U-shape of lounging tables, each one angled in such a way to support the weight of three or four people reclining, with all of their heads pointed toward the center of the U-shape where they could reach the food on small tables in front of them, and may have been the kind of setup that was in the upper room that night. Mealtimes in a setting like this were occasions for close connection and intimate conversation, and were certainly not for the claustrophobic. Because in this setting, the closest conversations happened between those that were reclining on either side of you. As people ate, they typically reclined on their left side, leaving their right arm free to reach for food and drink. And that means you would be close enough to hear the person on your left speaking directly into your ear. And the person on your right would be close enough to hear you speak and was very conducive to whispering private conversations that no one else could hear. So you can imagine 
that in a setting like this, in the Last Supper in the upper room, when the disciples first showed up to see this table setting, they began to ask themselves, which one of us gets to sit right next to him? Which, which one of us will, will have Jesus practically to ourselves tonight? To tell him what we're really thinking, to, to get on his good side, to have privileged access to him at the table. So think about it. According to Luke, this is all swimming around in their minds as Jesus begins to host this very special meal. Here he was, leading them in the most sacred and holy remembrance of the Jewish year. A reminder of how God had saved the Israelites from slavery thousands of years ago. And then the meal went from just special to extraordinary as Jesus then dropped a bombshell of a twist for his disciples because he announced in no uncertain terms that he was soon going to die. And just as the sacrificial blood sprinkled on the doorposts saved the Israelites from death, his own blood would save them. And just as the Passover lamb was killed to save the Israelites from separation from God, his own body would be killed to save the world from sin. A total mic drop of a moment. And what should have happened next in Luke is silence from the disciples. Their jaws should have dropped as that news sunk within them. The disciples should have been speechless. The tears should have been flowing. But instead, we know what happened next. The disciples were still fussing about the seating arrangements. According to John's gospel, the person sitting to the right of Jesus was John himself. Surprise, surprise, because he's, he's fond of telling us all throughout his gospel that he was his favorite. And who was the person sitting to the left of Jesus? The one who had personal, private access to Jesus' ear. Not Peter, not James, but Judas. That's why in John's gospel, Jesus was able to tell Judas, go do what you have to do without the rest of the disciples able to hear him. But in Luke, it's unsettled as to who is sitting where. Instead, in the wake of this jaw-dropping announcement by Jesus, the disciples were still bickering over the seating assignments. And that's when Jesus said, Look, fellas, if you really want to know who the greatest is, it's not about where you're sitting. It's about how you're serving. It's not about having things your way. It's not about whether or not you have privileged access to me. It's about surrender. It's about whether you are willing to give up what you want so that others might find life. As we turn the final corner of our Lenten journey and head toward the drama of Holy Week, we engage today what may be the hardest lesson of all these six weeks, the call to cultivate a humble servant's heart and to let go of ourselves just as Jesus did for us. Jim Collins, the renowned business consultant and best-selling author, once conducted a survey of companies in America which, over a span of a few years, surpassed all economic benchmarks to become great companies. He shared his results in the bestseller Good to Great. He and his colleagues began by asking the question, what kind of leader leads companies to greatness? 
Now, he began with the assumption that the kind of leader needed for companies was a larger-than-life, charismatic, enigmatic leader, a leader with an overpowering persona able to will the company into greatness based on their dominance. But his findings proved him wrong. The characteristics he found most in common among great leaders surprised him because in each case, leaders exhibited remarkable personal humility mixed with tireless professional will. A desire to give one's absolute effort to see the company fulfill its mission without any desire to receive any credit. In fact, the great leaders in Collins' study exhibited more a desire to be behind the scenes and allow those they supervise to receive the praise and bask in the spotlight. But this kind of uncanny humility in no way compromised their desire to give every ounce of their being for the accomplishing of the mission and to see the company succeed. So Collins' conclusion is pretty clear. If you want to be an effective leader, you have to be humble. You need a servant's heart. You need to be more ready to assume the blame when things go wrong and share the credit when things go right. And of course, this draws us to the question, if this is true in the business world, how much truer is it for every aspect of your life? Think about your marriage or significant relationship. How might cultivating more servanthood and letting go of entitlement transform your relationship? And if that relationship is broken, wouldn't even just a little dose of humility from you and from the other person go a long way toward bringing healing? How about in your career or your job? I mean, that's, that's the place where personal ambition most thrives and the, and the ladder to success feels most tempting. What would it look like to cultivate more servanthood and less entitlement? Wouldn't a little more humility in your career transform the way you treat the people you work with and work for? Wouldn't it transform your values and the, and the goals you set for your job? And how about in your faith? What would a spirit of servanthood look like? It might turn you outward to think about whom you might invite to experience God's love. And, and frankly, I can think of no better Sunday to reach out to your neighbor or friend than next Sunday, Easter Sunday, to invite them to join us for our online service. And my goodness, how might a spirit of servanthood transform our relationships across our polarized divisions and even between nations? Wouldn't a little more humility go a long, long way to heal the divisions that have brought incalculable harm. What would it be like if every morning you woke up and asked the question, God, instead of my trying to become number one today, how can I make you number one in my life? And, and how can I help others make you first in their lives? What would it be like to say to the people that you interact with the very words of Jesus? I am among you as one who serves. Let's pray. God, as we complete our journey to the cross this week, and as our emotions are stirred by the work of Jesus on the cross, teach us the way of humility and the way of servanthood. Forgive us for those times when we are so drawn inward upon ourselves that we fail to live out the work that you can do for others. Open our eyes to those we can serve today, 
and throughout our days. And may our spirit of servanthood help transform the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.